If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is a second History Extra podcast for April 2012. Coming up this week, we have... The best way to get this recognition is, uh, to put it bluntly, bash a barbarian. That was Gillian Hovell on why the Romans invaded Britain. Rereading Richard II to write the piece for the magazine, I was quite surprised with how accurate it is. And that was Dan Jones on Shakespeare's Richard II. This podcast comes to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of that on our website, historyextra.com. We're also available digitally nowadays. You can purchase our Kindle edition from the Amazon website, and our new iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. There's more information on the iPad edition at historyextra.com, forward slash iPad. Plus, as always, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash history extra or on twitter.com forward slash history extra. Gillian Hovell is an archaeologist and historian who has written the cover feature for our April issue, exploring some of the themes underlying our understanding of the Roman invasion of Britain two millennia ago. BBC History magazine editor David Musgrove caught up with her to find out more. We're talking about the Roman invasion of Britain. Yes. 
So the first thing we need to do is set the scene a bit. Um, so could you try and just describe what's happening um, in AD 43? Because that's the invasion I yes. think we should start with. Mm-hmm. Um, and just say a bit about why the Romans might have been interested in coming over to Britain. Right, fine. Well, Julius Caesar had headed over in 55 BC, not once but twice, and had been very short invasions, finding that the locals were a bit tougher than he thought, and basically retreating back again. He, he may have intended to come back, but it wasn't until Claudius came, 100 years later nearly, that the Romans really arrived uh, with a real force and an intention to stay. And they intended to invade and to take it over. They'd got trade already going, they'd got contacts going, but it was still a very barbaric place as far as they were concerned. It hadn't got all the finesse of the Roman civilization. Did the Romans come because they saw it as an economic opportunity or more because they thought there would be some prestige involved? Prestige is always the driving force of the Romans. If you wanted to get on as a Roman... What you'd do is you'd have to do your military career. The really big bit of being a general is to actually conquer somebody and to come back for your triumphal procession that would arrive in Rome with the flags flying, the the chariots, the booty, the captives behind you. And if you could get that triumph, then that was the top of your, your military career. But it was your way into politics too, into leadership. Now, Claudius, bless him, hadn't really expected to be emperor. So he hadn't had a military career, he hadn't got any real military recognition, and he needed some badly. And the best way to get this recognition is, uh, to put it bluntly, bash a barbarian uh, and come back and saying, I've conquered this land that needed conquering. And Britain was there, not quite for the asking, but it had been, there'd been some forays into it with Julius Caesar. Caligula had had a legion set up specifically to actually invade Britain, but he hadn't got that far. So he had some soldiers waiting to go into action and it was the obvious choice and he, he, he didn't do the generalship, he sent off Alice Plautius who came in and did it and then Claudius came in, made a triumphal entry into Colchester and then went back for his big triumphal procession in Rome. So it was to seal his real authority. So, so tell, tell me about Claudius then, so would he have been in any way involved in the day-to-day planning of of the invasion, do you think? He wasn't He wasn't the general on the ground. Do we have any idea about what his involvement might have been? He, said, he, he, well, he, he ordered it. He was the Roman emperor and he ordered it. There's no doubt about that. that there was no sort of um, independence on the general's part. It wasn't the general who decided to go for it and was going to take the kudos for it. He sent Aus Portius over to it with the instructions to conquer Britain. Whether Claudius was involved in day-to-day, probably not. He just said, send me a signal when you're ready for me to come and uh, arrive. And he did. He took some elephants over with him as well to enter Colchester, which is a big dramatic gesture. But it also frightens cavalry, and they knew that. So he knew certain things because he was a historian. So he'd studied Roman history, he'd studied battles and military, but he hadn't led an army himself. So he probably wasn't qualified to go in and do it himself in any shape or form. And anyway, he was busy being emperor. Yeah. Yeah. So do we know where he was while the Romans were invading? As far as we know, I mean, he took a couple of weeks to get to Britain. So he was, he was in Rome, almost certainly, and then called over. It takes a while to get across Gaul, across yeah. France. Uh, whether he was t- sort of t- on tour at the time, 
uh, we're not really sure. Okay. Mm. And another thing we're not sure about is where the Romans actually landed. No, there's three places, uh, and we don't. We, we certainly don't know the third, uh, which was one of them, yeah. almost certainly. Uh, but they're not really sure. It's very, it's very hard to actually know where they landed because when you arrive somewhere, you're going to build a very temporary camp. You might build a wooden fort, or you might just build a, a brief sort of ditches and the like. So they're more interested in moving on and getting further on and overnight camps and the like. So until you're getting proper forts, settlements which are standing their ground, then we haven't really got any evidence. There's a few coins and things like that, but there's already coins of Rome before Claudius arrives. You've already got signs of trade and money and all of that scattered around, especially on the south coast. So you can't say, oh, good, there's a bit that's that year, and say, well, that must have been the invasion. Uh, but the Hallison helmet is dated to the years of the, the actual invasion, but that's right up north. That's sort of Leicestershire way. <laughs> so it certainly obviously isn't a, a landing point. So even if you've got something dated, the invasion year, you, you don't, you can't say that's where they landed. It's because it's moved around. Okay. Mm. So you're an archaeologist as well as a historian, a classicist and a writer. Yes. Um, from an archaeological perspective, is there... Is there any way that we'll ever find out where they landed or will the remains of their first camp always be so ephemeral that we wouldn't be able to find it, even if someone you know, went all along the south coast of Britain and, and dug well, up at every available site? I think it's highly unlikely. They're not going to put a plaque that says we landed here because they didn't know they were going to conquer at the time. Uh, what you might find is signs of battle on particular spots, which is highly likely they'd been greeted by the locals who would have uh, fought them as they'd landed. But if they did create a fort, then there's a good chance that a later fort was built on top of it. Um, and it's very hard to find those ephemeral overnight forts underneath a permanent fort. It's a bit of a holy grail, really. It would be nice to know where did the Romans first land and start the actual occupation of Britain. Uh, but I, I don't think... We, we're going to find areas where it's likely... We're going to find areas where they've left bits of armour or bits and pieces of stuff or buried what they don't need, their rubbish. And that if we can date that and it's very close to the invasion date, then we might be there. Right. Yeah. Okay, so it's a big force, comes and lands somewhere on the south coast. We don't know where exactly. Um, and then do we, do we know what, what the first engagement is? Do we know on you know, the, the early days of the, of the attack or is everything so obscure now that we can't really be sure well they argue about where they crossed rivers and which river even to a certain extent they crossed uh, to get there all we've got is what the romans wrote the british wrote nothing because they had no writing so there's no record there saying oh these wretched romans came and you know invaded us this way or that way we can follow a, a trail of bits and pieces of armor or the like and we can only believe what the romans have said uh, and they're trying to say well they were barbaric guerrilla warfare kind of people. So they arrived and were greeted with very difficult tactics to fight. Uh, but we've only got their word, and their word is a bit um, uh, thin, shall we say. Uh, when they talk about attacking Anglesey a few years later, there's a whole chunk about how the women are up there with black hair streaming and screaming like furies and brandishing torches, and then in two sentences, and they took over Anglesey more or less so you don't always get much detail written down they're more interested in showing how it f looked and what a great triumph it was than the actual precise details mm. so it's a little bit dodgy can we can we make a guess at what the romans 
thought about the opposition? Were they worried about the qual- the calibre of the British warriors? Uh, I don't know whether they were worried about the calibre. They were certainly worried about the chariots. They do comment about how good they are at the chariots, that they can ride the chariots at full speed, turn on virtually a sixpence equivalent of it, run up and down the yoke between the horses, wheel, throw javelins. They're obviously staggered by the skill of the British on the chariots. But also they were so terrified that Claudius's army in Gaul refused to cross not because they were frightened of the soldiers, but because they were frightened of the rumours. There were tales of barbaric rituals and human sacrifice and all sorts of things that are just so un-Roman. Uh, this is from the people who have gladiator shows. It's a bit <laughs> hypocritical, really. But they just petrified and wouldn't go across to this barbaric land that was so off the edge of the planet. And Claudius had to send his freedman, his, his slave, ex-slave, Narcissus, to go and tell them that they were behaving in a silly way and they jolly well would do what their general said and they would cross the channel. Uh, And it's very humiliating to have an ex-slave tell you as a soldier that you've got to obey your general. So they plucked up their courage and went, and like at Anglesey, they were petrified then. There's this barbaric, screaming, half-naked bunch of people with their hair lined up into spikes and blue woad over their bodies uh, who just were out for personal warrior kudos not as a fighting force together, but for their own individual one as well as their tribal security. Uh, it was just so alien to them. It's always, always struck me as slightly odd, that, that element of the story, because there is evidence of, of some sort of trading contacts mm. prior mm. to the invasion. There was certainly definitely. some oh, activity definitely. going on. On the south the coast, yeah. there was a lot, yes. That brings us on to the question of whether there was uh, uh, an element of the population that actively wanted the Romans to come. And that's been illuminated somewhat recently by the find of the Halliton helmet, which you, which you mentioned earlier. So tell me about the Halliton helmet. Tell me whether the, any of the Britons wanted the Romans to come. Yeah, um, uh, they're certainly worthwhile. For, the, for those in the south, they'd been trading with Rome for a long time. Um, they knew that if they became part of the Roman Empire, then they would have access to all of the resources across the whole empire, not just trading across the channel, but real proper sort of trading. And those who were in power knew that the, if they couldn't defeat the Romans, that they were going to be hauled off the Romans' booty, basically, and humiliated in a triumphal procession. But they also knew that if they went on the right side, Rome would let them be the puppet leaders. Uh, and if you're likely to have a very grand palace, in effect, a bit like Fishbourne seems to have been in the end of it, then... Perhaps you could throw your lot in with the Romans and have a very good life indeed. Uh, very good. And they, the stories about the barbaric stuff might be exaggerated by the historians who wanted to say, Britain was so barbaric that we've just got to civilise them. Uh, if we don't, it's, you know, it's our public duty to, to civilise them, really. They're so, these awful people. So how much of that is propaganda anyway? Because it's a better victory. It's one that's morally correct to do if you take these people. So you've got the historians showing that it's an awful place that needs Rome, but there were certainly a lot of people in Britain already who thought, well, maybe, maybe it's a good idea. And the Hallerton helmet is a wonderful... It's not a warfare helmet at all. It's not a fighting helmet. It's far too embellished and full of precious metal uh, and full of decoration. It wouldn't have lasted two seconds in battle. Uh, and it's right up there halfway up the country, and seems to have been a prize, a reward for supporting the Romans. 
Uh, what does that mean that the tribes up there had come down and and betrayed their own? Or we don't know, except that we do know that some of the British actually did support. There were Celts who were in the Roman army as auxiliaries, uh, mercenaries, really. Uh, so could it they have been the mercenaries? We don't know. We might find more with more archaeology. Difficult to know. Okay. So, so we, we we can make an inference there was some element of division among among the indigenous Britons about whether to support or yeah. or um, oppose Romans. Mm. Quite a few did oppose the Romans, and and there, and there was some hard fighting. Oh, there was there, a lot there, of hard fighting. Yes, that, there's, there's evidence for real hard fighting. They really, I, Julius Caesar met with such opposition, and Claudius certainly met with opposition. But the in Britain, it wasn't one. They didn't come and arrive in Britain. What they did was they arrived in a land that was full of tribes and one tribe would fight another tribe. And if the Romans came, what they'd done was said, spoken to the Romans before and said, look, if we support you against our enemy tribes, you know, will you let us you know, be occupied in a gentler way kind of thing? So there was a lot of intertribal fighting going on and the Romans being used as pawns to finish off their tribal enemies. Uh, it, it must just been a mess really <laughs> and the Romans played one off against the other absolutely certainly they did yeah. and given that division amongst the British tribes presumably there was never any chance realistic chance of standing up to the to the Roman legionaries no the, the Britons were never a unified force uh, and they never fought together in any particular way they tried to pull themselves together when they realised things were going bad uh, and they did put up a fight against them, but it wasn't enough and they hadn't got a culture that was used to doing it. If they'd have conquered the Romans, they would have divided and gone their own way again. It wasn't a long-lasting treaty that was going to survive. A very fragmented society indeed. Uh, and we we talk about the invasion of Britain and Roman Britain and occupied, you know, the occupation of Roman Britain, but that's it, it's, it's wrong, isn't it, because it was never Britain that the Romans really, you know, they didn't yeah. overwhelm all of Britain. It's one of the strange things, because we, sh- we shouldn't really talk about Roman Britain at all. They came in, and within just a couple of decades, they had got England, well, within three years, they were all of England, from Exeter right up to Lincoln, a remarkably quick time. But then it took several decades to get across Wales, who were objecting, it took several decades to get up through the north of Britain, who were very much more military against than objecting to the Romans. And although they did a few sorties into Scotland, mostly they didn't get much beyond Hadrian's Wall. They did. They got to Antonine Wall and then they went on further, but they had to keep retreating. Scotland was never conquered, not properly conquered, and they never went to Ireland. But they talked about it. There was talk of it. It's not Roman Britain. It's Roman England and a bit of Wales, and Wales and a tiny bit of Scotland, really. Uh, so why we say Roman Britain? <laughs> but you can't say Roman England and Wales. It doesn't sound quite as good is it really <laughs> and is there is there a point where you can identify where sort of the 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 occupy the occupation started and like the you know the territory was was stabilized can we can we establish when the romans felt secure in having subdued the tribes <clears throat> well within uh well by 60 ad or even by 50 ad within within 10 years you've got five six major towns having been developed, some out of forts which have grown up, uh, and some London which they've built, started from scratch, really. Uh, but others where they've occupied the, the 
let's call them the administrative centres, the main areas, centralised areas for the tribes. And that's within a decade of arriving. They've got towns which had never existed before, creating Roman life which had never existed before, with public buildings and baths and a sort of public magistrate kind of way, somebody, a puppet chief, uh, answering to the to sorry to the Romans, a whole new ways of life, all within a decade, is a very dramatic thing. But that's all in the south. Once you get into Wales, you're still hammering away at the tribes who were still fighting. And in the north, we were never anything but a military zone. Uh, yes, there's York, which is big, but it's very military. Uh, there's Oldborough, which has recently found that it's got an amphitheatre and it's being raised to the point where it is the administrative centre for the north of Britain. But it's not like the south of England. It's still heavily sort of got soldiers garrisoned across it. The south of England, they were having villas and, and settling down very nicely because they get the benefit of the trade across the channel. Uh, but up in the north, it was difficult. So it's not a, a general smooth Roman that's occupied all of Wales and England. It's not like Rome had all of Gaul kind of level. It's it's very much the edge of the world and the frontier land. We we talk quite a lot about um, things that we don't really know about, which is which, which is kind of a, a theme of this story, isn't it? There's lots that we we can only guess at because the sources simply don't survive. So you've been writing a book about Roman Britain, so presumably looking at all the sources and and and, uh, and and going through them. Is there is there anything new that's 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 come out, or is it just a case of there's a set number of sources and, and really that's that's all you can do with them? One of the beauties is that we don't know it all, which means that every new find, every single new find, could change the story. So the Harrison Helmet has turned the idea of the barbarians fighting against the occupying Romans in a you know, t- sort of up to the point of death kind of battle into one where the edges are blurred. And we've known they're blurred for a long time, really. But it's nice to see some evidence that it's blurred. So each new thing that is found, and there's stuff being turned up all the time, but it takes several years to be reported on. Okay, last question. Uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, to predict the future, which is difficult for, <laughs> for, for a historian and a classic. But if I asked you to guess what one aspect of the Roman invasion might be overturned or what one finding might uh, come up that's going to uh, change our understanding of what happened, would you, would you like to hazard uh, Ooh, a prediction? That's a wish list for an archaeologist, that. <laughs> um, helmets are coming up, uh, various helmets. Uh, ceremonial helmets seems to have been the in thing. Um, metal detectorists are, are out there. Um, if they're being done in a responsible way, it's likely to be something metal that will be turned up, unless there are new sites. Finding that landing site would be nice because <laughs> that would tell the story of what... If we had a site camp which just had the stuff that they had when they first arrived, it would be fantastic, but it's not going to happen, uh, not in reality. If you had to have one thing that would overturn or change or give fresh evidence for the Roman invasion, mm, it's a difficult one, really, because if you're talking about the early years, in Colchester, it's all been built over. And Colchester is like the place, this is where Claudius came into with his elephants and arrived in his triumphal entry. Um, the locals were just went, that's it, fine, we're finished at that point. It would be, <laughs> in a dream world, Colchester um, is a very nice place, but it would be nice to be able to get underneath Colchester. And it has built over the top of 
all of the ancient Rome. There's very little you can access in culture, so it's very disappointing to go there and not be able to see it. If there's stuff that can be found in Colchester, that's very early stuff, that would be a real glimpse, a very real glimpse into the, we are here, we are Romans, and we're here to stay kind of buildings, the stone buildings that just shout Rome, uh, right in the middle of an Iron Age British world. It would be nice to see those two cultures being, well, one stamped on top of the other, really, uh, coming together. Uh, So something under or around Colchester would be a really big find. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Gillian Hovell. Her book, Roman Britain, is published now by Crimson Publishing. And her website is muddyarchaeologist.co.uk. As I mentioned before, you can read Gillian's feature in the April issue of the magazine all about the Roman invasion of Britain. In that same issue, you'll also find a fascinating piece about nightlife in ancient Rome, so it's a real treat for the classical history enthusiasts among you. Now we have a short advert. Want to enjoy great historic days out? Membership to Historic Royal Palaces allows free and unlimited entry to the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. With the transformed Kensington Palace now open, exciting new exhibitions at Hampton Court and Kew, plus Diamond Jubilee and Olympic celebrations, 2012 promises to be the year to be a member. Prices start from just £43 a year. Visit hrp.org.uk or call 0844 482 to become a member of our historic royal family. Monday the 23rd of April sees the launch of the World Shakespeare Festival, a half-year celebration of the Bard and his work. 
To coincide with the festival, we asked historian Dan Jones to write a piece for our April issue looking at the history behind one of Shakespeare's most intriguing plays, Richard II. I also had the chance to chat to Dan recently to find out how accurate Shakespeare's portrayal of the tragic king really was. So Dan, just to begin with, could you please give us just a quick rundown of what the key moments were in Richard II's reign? Okay, Richard II is um, in some ways the last of the Plantagenets, um, in the sense that he is the last in the direct line of kings that come down from Henry II uh, in the the 12th century. and he's deposed by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, um, the Duke of Lancaster, who becomes Henry IV. Uh, Richard's reign is, to say action-packed, is probably fair enough. Yeah, he comes to the throne aged nine in uh, 1377, on the death of his grandfather, Edward III. Um, and he subsequently has to deal with the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, which is the sort of great moment of popular uproar and um, and anguish that accompanies poll taxes, uh, great discontent concerning labour laws that have been instituted after the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century. Um, he deals quite adequately with that when he's 14 years old, which is the, the, the irony. He probably deals better with the Peasants' Revolt than he deals with anything else in his entire reign, because as he grows up, he governs England fairly poorly. He takes bad advice as he's growing up uh, from the young men of his court around him, including Robert de Vere, whom he eventually raises the Duke of Ireland, much to the annoyance of uh, the rest of the country. Um, in the 1380s, there are a succession of attempts made through Parliament, the wonderful Parliament and the merciless Parliament, there are attempts made to bring Richard into line, at first to yeah. govern the country through a series of reforming councils, and then subsequently when it turns out that the king is not going to abide by the rules of the reforming councils, to purge his court of his favourites, um, several of whom are beheaded, including mm. his chief justice, uh, Sir Robert Tresillian. There's a form of judicial murder when Richard's favourites are tried for treason. So these are the sort of upheavals of the 1380s, and Richard is effectively humiliated by his country, um, by the Lord's Appellant, as they're called, um, who are five of his key nobles who who come to Parliament and and make the case for um, purging his court. Then, in a sense, if we're talking about the big events of his reign, the reign goes quiet for a little while until we get to the late 1390s. In 1397 when all of the political troubles that began in the 1380s explode back into life. And Richard once again is up against the men who tormented him in the 1380s, the Appellants, only this time he's on the attack. He spent very quietly the late 1380s and the early 1390s building what amounts to a private army based around his retainers in um, the Earldom of Chester. he launches an attack against all of his old enemies in 1397 in what's called the what's known as his tyranny and that lasts for two years until 1399 and it culminates in Richard's attempt to seize on the death of his uncle John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, his attempt to seize all of the Lancastrian estates which rightfully should belong to Henry Bolingbroke whom he's um, whom he's exiled in, in a dispute we'll probably talk about in a minute 
this is the catalyst for a massive political revolt, an invasion by Henry Bolingbroke um, from exile, and the very swift deposition of Richard II and the subsequent um, accession of Henry IV. Uh, and th these events at the end of the reign are what Shakespeare's play mainly deals with. So Richard II is deposed by Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV, and he's then put in prison where he dies, and I think it's, I'm right to say they're not 100% sure what he dies of. He dies most probably of starvation. Mm. Um, there is a question as to whether Richard starves himself to death um, at the fa at, with disappointment at the failure of a plot to release him very early in Henry IV's reign. Yeah. On his uh, 40th birthday. Um, there is also uh, a suggestion, which is probably more accurate, that he's deliberately starved to death on the orders of Henry IV. And some more sympathetic sources, including a French chronicle, um, which is kind of close to, to Richard's side of things, suggests that he was killed with an axe wound to the head. But I think we can discount that because his body, after his death, was shown by Henry, Henry IV's government. In fact, it was, it was taken all the way from Pontefract uh, down to King's Langley, where he, uh, down to London and then back to King's Langley with the uh, face visible. So I think you would have seen if there was you know, yeah. an axe blow to the head. But yes, he, he is starved to death either by his own hand, more probably by his jailers in Pontefract Castle. And at the time, what was the precedent for a king being deposed in this way? Was it, was it an unusual event for a king to be stripped of office in such a manner? For a king to be deposed in the way that Richard is deposed is absolutely um, unprecedented in the form that it's done because it is a formal deposition. It's not unprecedented because uh, several generations earlier in Plantagenet history, of course, Edward II has been deposed. But with Edward II, it's not framed as a deposition per se. Edward II, they create a fiction of his voluntary abdication in favour of his eldest son, Edward, who becomes Edward III. Mm. Um, so yes, uh, everyone knows at the time of Richard's reign that Edward II was whatever we want to call it, depose and put off the throne. But it was a much easier situation in 1327 when Edward II had, had to be got rid of, um, in the sense that there was a legitimate heir in the wings waiting um, who could be presented as this is the, the continuation of the Plantagenet line. Um, during Richard's reign, in fact during... Um, at one point during Edward III's reign as well, and Edward III turns out to be pretty much one of the best medieval kings, if not the greatest of the medieval kings. Um, Richard, like Edward early in his reign, is reminded of the fate of Edward II, and people like to say, don't forget, if you don't govern properly, remember what happened to, to your ancestor, um, to Edward II. So what happened to Richard II was clearly quite an unusual event for a medieval king. How much of of the blame for his own downfall could be laid upon himself? Well, I think it's very hard to look at Richard II's reign, and this is what I point out in the, the new book for Plantagenets. Um, it's very hard to look at Richard II's reign and say that this is the culmination of purely political or constitutional issues. It's hard to say that this is, you know, he inherits bad circumstances, that the wars going to hell, that the English economy is, is in a very difficult place. All of these things are true, mm. um, but I think you have to put a great deal of Richard's problems down to his own peculiar personality. 
he's extremely paranoid, he's very suspicious, he's personally deeply insecure. Um, and I think a lot of these things can be explained. I mean, he's fundamentally an odd individual, there's no doubt about that, and everyone can sort of see it and recognise it. He doesn't exude kingliness, and I know that sounds like a very nebulous and unhistorical term to use, but some kings got it and some kings ain't, right? Yeah. Edward I, Edward III, they just have something within them. They have this kind of force of personality and the intelligence to understand the business of kingship. And kings like Edward II and Richard II lack that. There are also you know, specific things that Richard II does wrong and there are specific things that, that come from within him um, that cause him problems. And I think with Richard II, you have to look at the odd circumstances in which he becomes king. You know, he becomes king aged, as I say, age nine. Um, and even before he becomes king, he's already the heir because his father, the Black Prince, dies before his grandfather, Edward III. And there's a moment which I describe in the Plantagenets in 1376 at the Good Parliament, which is a parliament which is trying to restore uh, some credibility to Edward III's government, uh, which is decaying as the king is going senile in his old age uh, and is incredibly corrupt. Uh, and at the Good Parliament, um, was intended by the Commons to impeach Edward's ministers and to uh, reform royal government. It is very humiliating for, for Edward III and for the royal government. And as an attempt to sort of break a peace at the Good Parliament, Richard himself, Richard of Bordeaux, you know, the young the young prince who, who's eight or nine, is brought before the Parliament and sort of presented and hailed as this kind of great you know, almost godly king and, and the saviour of the country and the future of the country. And he has all these sort of old men saying to him, you know, you will be the future, you will restore the country to greatness. Uh, and the same with his coronation. His coronation is the first coronation for more than 50 years. And, and again, people are saying to him, you're going to be the, the great king, you are the saviour of England. There's a lot of pageantry and iconography that's telling him this. So he grows up without seeing a, a model of kingship because his grandfather is senile. He never mm. sees another king doing course, well. Yeah. Uh, and he's also told, you are the, you are the sort of great king, or you, you're the sort of saviour of England. Um, and then he's also told, you know, and the peasants revolt again, he rides out and the peasants are acclaiming him as the, the great man, the great king, this almost sort of, you know, the anointed king, this quasi-divine figure. But when things start going wrong for him, he comes under what must feel to him like surprisingly sharp and immediate attack from his own subjects. And and so he's confused, and he has this, this great sense where on the one hand, hang on, you're telling me that I'm you know, the greatest king ever to have lived, and on the other hand, now you're humiliating me and attacking me. And, uh, and he never learns to, to, to work out what this is all about. He never gets his head around kingship. And I think to some extent you can say that's a, a, personal, a personality issue. Um, and is it, is it an innate personality issue? Is it something that, that's developed by the way he grows up? I think it's, it's probably a little bit of both. Now, what Shakespeare sees in his play is, uh, or what Shakespeare concentrates in his play a little bit on, is the contrasting personalities between Richard II and his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, John of Gaunt's son. Um, and that's a, that's a useful dramatic device um, in order to explore all sorts of themes of, of, um, of kingship. Um, yeah, I think what you see in Shakespeare's play is, is in some ways quite an accurate rendering of Richard II's personality and, um, and although it is used for dramatic purposes to explore themes, different themes of kingship, I think 
the way Shakespeare presents Richard's personality and the way Shakespeare lays a lot of the blame for Richard's deposition on his failings as a man um, rings to some extent historically true, probably as historically true as any portrait of kingship that Shakespeare ever gives us. So yeah, coming on to Richard II, mm -hmm. you said that you think in that aspect it was quite true to life. In general, as a play, how close was it to the real events of the period? Shakespeare's Richard II deals with uh, the last two years of Richard's reign. Um, it sort of mashes up the timeline a little bit to fit into you know, two years into five acts. But it begins in Coventry at a duel between, a judicial duel between Henry Bolingbroke, Richard's cousin, and um, Thomas Mowbray, the Duke of Norfolk. And this is a real scene, this really happened. Um, there is a very complicated plot or series of accusations concerning a plot uh, between Mowbray and, and Bolingbroke. And um, this was all played out in, in the sort of last years of Richard's reign. And there was accusation and counter-accusation. And Richard decided to settle it with a duel between these mm. two dukes. And this is something quite unusual and unprecedented, but it, it absolutely did happen. Uh, and as we see in the play, they arrive, they make their accusations against one another. There's a lot of sort of, you know, arguing and pr protestations of loyalty. The duel is about to begin, Richard stands up and says, no, 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 actually, hang on, I'm not having this. Um, I'm, gonna get, I'm not going to allow you to fight, I'm going to go away and make a decision with my advisers and we're going to settle this without a duel. And that really happened. Uh, and he settles it with terms of banishment for Mowbray, who's banished for life, and Bolingbroke, who's banished for a period of ten years, reduced to six years, I think. And all of this really happened, and this is the, st but this is the starting point mm. of the play. Uh, and in some ways, this is also the starting point of Richard's tyranny in, in reality. In the play, we then skip quite a lot um, and skip forward to uh, the moment where Richard decides he's going to go off to settle uh, matters in Ireland, which again is true. Uh, Richard, Richard II probably did more than any other of the Plantagenet kings, um, barring King John, another fairly unsuccessful Plantagenet, to bring some semblance of the English crown's rule to Ireland. Mm. Uh, again, this really happens, but this, this we've now skipped forward to 1399. We have John of Gaunt dying in sort of despair at what's happening to the country in Shakespeare's play. Again, it's very likely that was, those were John of Gaunt's feelings on his death. We have Richard seizing all of Gaunt's property. Again, that's, that really happened. And then we have the return of Bolingbroke and the deposition of Richard II. So the, the broad outline of events in Shakespeare's play are much as they are in reality. I mean, it's, it's dramatised, but it's, it's a history play in the sense it really is telling the events more or less as they were. Um, some of the themes that it, it brings in and deals with are contemporary to Shakespeare's time, particularly, you know, themes of, of kingship and of the obedience due to the monarch, which are, are very current in the 1590s and which are sort of transposed backwards onto, onto the um, 1390s. But yeah, I mean, I, I, rereading Richard II to write the piece for the magazine, I was quite surprised with how accurate it is and how, um, how right Shakespeare gets it compared to a lot of the other mm. history plays. It, it's, it's not often thought of as the greatest of the history plays. Um, but it does have a sort of startling um, 
immediacy to it, which which I think is often forgotten. So you think in the case of Richard II, which I suppose is different from like Richard III, there's not a big difference between the Shakespeare play and the historical events? Because I know people sometimes say that Shakespeare's clouded our judgment. Maybe in this case it was actually quite true to life. I think if you're going to make a case for Shakespeare getting things right, then Richard II is probably your best place to start. Uh, I think Richard III has his defenders, and there's a big argument. And I know Richard III, um, Richard III's defenders are, get quite annoyed about Shakespeare, and with some justification. Um, in the case of Richard II, I don't think that Shakespeare has unduly clouded our vision of him because almost everything that Shakespeare attributes to him, the sort of histrionic kind of personality, the suspicion, the vacillation, the uncertainty of mind, um, the sort of the flick-flacking between um, the attempt to be kind of majestic and grand and then the kind of cowering into the suspicion and the, um, you know, the, the sort of tearful recrimination. I think it's pretty accurate. Um, I think his, his imagining of Bolingbroke is, is fairly simplistic, but in, in, in some cases it's not the Bolingbroke of Richard II we really think of if we're thinking of Henry IV. You know, it's the, that Henry we, we're thinking of when we think of Henry IV Part One and Two. You know. So why do you think this Shakespeare player was so much close to life than perhaps some of his others? Was it due to the source material he was using? I'm not sure. I think there's probably a lot of reasons why Shakespeare's Richard II is truer to life than some of his other plays. I th I, I'm not sure it, it necessarily comes down to the source material, although there is this, this wonderful speech, and probably my favourite speech mm. from Richard II, which is also one of my favourite moments from the Chronicles of Richard II's reign. The Chronicle of Adam of Ask <clears throat> uh, describes... Adam goes to dinner with Richard II when he's imprisoned in the tower. And he goes to dinner with one of his political masters who's, who's sent there to sort of assess Richard's state of mind. And the Chronicle is, is wonderful because it has this description of Richard in the sort of depths of depression. Um, and he's, been, he's had all of his servants taken away from him. He's been stripped of everything that he loves, all the sort of finery of kingship, and he's a prisoner, and all the people serving him his food are his cousin's spies, effectively. Mm. And he has these, these people to dinner. And Adam Vusk describes sort of watching the king kind of forlornly eat. At the end of dinner, he starts to hold forth about English history. And he starts to tell all the stories of the great kings of England. Who've been kind of uh, who've been betrayed, who've been let down, who've been usurped, who've been destroyed by their subjects. And he's feeling Richard II has a tendency to feel sorry for himself, and this is him at his most maudlin. Um, and Adam goes away and writes this down and says, "Oh God, it's so depressing. I want to see this king, this king, and all he did was whinge about history and how England's always destroyed its kings." And he says, and he sort of has this great line, which is, "Oh, it was just a sort of pitiful sight." And this is rendered in Shakespeare, and Richard II provides us with quite a lot of, uh, of our famous Shakespeare, you know, famous Shakespeare passages, not least the Sceptred Isle speech of John of Gaunt gives. But uh, I think my favourite 
speech in Richard II is where Shakespeare takes this scene of Richard in prison telling stories. And he says, ah, oh, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Um, and he really imagines this scene very accurately, almost exactly as, as Adam has described it. So obviously he's used Adam of Usk uh, as his source, or in reading Holland said, then Holland said has used Adam of Usk. But he's, he's come back to an eyewitness account of Richard at his most kind of miserable and, um, and self-pitying and has not really had to do much of the material. So were you yourself first drawn to the character of Richard II through the Shakespeare side or the historical side? Oh, Richard II, for me, has always been the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating, yet yeah, probably the most fascinating of the Plantagenet kings. Um, my first book was Summer of Blood, which was a history of the Peasants' Revolt. Mm. Uh, and I was just totally, totally fascinated by Richard's role when I write this. You know, the 14-year-old boy surrounded by kind of fairly inept um, ministers, stuck in the Tower of London, looking out across the city and just seeing it burn. I mean, this, you know, this totally unprecedented event. And the psychology of Richard II when I was writing Summer of Blood was something that really stuck in my mind. And originally my second book in the deal that I had with HarperCollins was going to be a biography of Richard II. Uh, but there's an, you know, there are already two very good biographical works on Richard II. One is Nigel Saw's Yale History of yeah. Richard II. And I didn't think I was going to write something uh, that would surpass that because it's so good. Um, and there's another book by Michael Bennett, which is Richard II and the Revolution of 19, 1399. And I thought, well, I looked at those two and I thought, well, they, these are such, both such brilliant books. I don't, I don't see that I'm going to add much. But so uh, the book I decided to write is the history of the Plantagenets from Henry II to Richard II, because what I wanted to get to with Richard is a sense of how does he misunderstand kingship so much when he comes from this fantastic line of kings, you know, started by Henry II, one of the most astonishing people in, in English history. Um, you know, he has in his bloodline Richard the Lionheart, whom he's named after, you know, which was born in Bordeaux, in, in the heart of, of Lionheart country. Uh, you know, of Edward I, of Edward III, of the Black Prince, and all of these wonderful characters in his family past. How, would, how do they turn out Richard II? And how does he manage to mess it up so much <laughs> that after 240-odd years of Plantagenet rule, he's deposed, and the whole thing disintegrates, and the, the 15th century which follows is the sort of catastrophe of the what we call the Wars of the Roses, you know, the wars of succession which break out in the mid-15th century, which all spring from Richard's reign. Mm. Um, and so in a way, writing the Plantagenets, it's all leading up to where we get to with Richard. You know, the way England has developed, the way Britain, the British Isles have developed, the way relations with France have developed, uh, and, and it climaxes in this reign of, of Richard II in which everything just falls together in this jumble and um, and the country sort of nearly collapses several times, and finally this huge decision not to create a sort of legal abdication of a king, but to forcibly depose a king and effectively elect another king in his place, which is what's done with Henry IV as a form of, of elective kingship. I just find totally astonishing, and, and so much of it is rooted in the character of Richard II. So, I mean, 
then as you're, as you're writing a book like this, you inevitably look at sort of fictional and dramatic representations of kingship. Um, and I remember, before I started writing The Plantagenets, but um, in fact while I was still writing Summer of Blood, uh, I went to see Kevin Spacey do Richard at the Old Vic in London. Uh, and that was a very, very powerful rendering of, of Richard, and that really stuck in my mind. And, um, and so I, I, I'm fond of the Shakespeare play as well, I think. As I say, I mean, most of Shakespeare's plays, you know, are going after uh, where the Plantagenets ends and, and off into the fifteenth into the fifteenth century. But um, I do, I do have a, a, a very a big fondness for Richard II, the play, as well as a total fascination of the character. And do you think the play is a good way for the wider public to get to know more about this king? Oh, listen, I think um, Shakespeare's history plays are fantastic, and I think absolutely. Look, if you want to get inside the character of Richard II, by all means start with Shakespeare. Why not? I mean, it's it's such a exciting play. Um, it's such a great character for, you know, it's going to be Ben Wishaw on the BBC Two version. It's such a... who's a fantastic actor for, for Ben to get inside. Uh, yeah, I mean, fantastic. Start with start with Shakespeare and then start reading reading more about Richard II's reign because you you will not be disappointed. It's it's not a letdown. It's uh, you know you're just going to get deeper and deeper inside this unbelievably fascinating story. That was Dan Jones. His latest book, The Plantagenets: The Kings Who Made England, will be published by Harper Press next month. And you can read his piece about Richard II in our April issue. Dan Jones will be speaking alongside Susanna Lipscomb at a BBC History magazine lecture at the Tower of London on the 17th of May. They'll be debating the relative merits of the Tudor and Plantagenet dynasties and that will be followed by a book signing and a drinks reception. You can find out more about this event and you can book tickets online at historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture. And if you're interested in the World Shakespeare Festival, check out worldshakespearefestival.org.uk for more information. We'll be considering Shakespeare's relationship with another English king, Richard III, in our May issue. Well, that's all for this week's podcast. Do listen again next week, when we'll be joined by Mary Beard and Richard Evans to discuss ancient Rome and history in schools. In the meantime, do keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.